I'm Don Merrill, and I'm talking with David Taylor. Mr. Taylor is an independent. He's running for House Representative in District 30. Mr. Taylor, thank you very much for coming. Oh, thank you for having me. Mr. Taylor, um, you are running as an independent. The independent party became a registered party uh, last year in Oregon for the first time. I wanted to ask you, um, why do you want to be a state representative? Oh, there's a lot of things that uh, influence that. I think it... Uh it's a culmination of, I guess, my life story. It's shared by many uh, Oregonians. You know, I came from a pretty impoverished family, and it was a pretty great struggle for me to escape that poverty. And I, I literally had to hit every open window that was, you know, few and far between perfectly. And I thought, if I had to do this perfectly, what about the average person who uh, doesn't have the same access, the same avenues to opportunity that I had? And I look around... Uh, Oregon today since I exited the Marine Corps, and uh, I'm troubled. So, you know, I, I need to do my part to help remove some of these problems that are plaguing uh, Oregonians today. What qualifications do you bring to the job? Oh, geez, I'm a, <clears throat> I'm a husband, I'm a father, uh, I'm a member of the Oregon working community, I'm a veteran, I have a graduate degree. Um, you know, I, I don't know what else there is. I guess the citizen legislature, so... You know, uh, simply by being uh, an Oregonian American makes me qualified, but I think I do bring a breadth of experience along with me. I watched your, your YouTube press conference uh, that you did on uh, December 21st, and I wanted to ask you, one of the things that you mentioned in that press conference was you seem to have questions about the way people are able to be, I guess, recognized or... Or, or dealt with by the established political structure. And you mentioned uh, Julie Parrish and Dan Meeks in particular. Can, can you talk a little bit about that? <clears throat> well, the per political process is not set up for a citizen legislature. It's not. And that's sort of my biggest problem. So that press conference, I was a little bit chastising of the independent party leadership. And, uh, and that's sort of what I was trying to influence them, to wake up. You can't just... Influence who to wake up? The, those that are in the independent party trying to provide an avenue for all the NAVs to express themselves. NAVs. Non-affiliated voters. Okay. There's a lot of them. My district, it's nearly 40% of the district is NAV. That's huge. People who just became disenfranchised are just really tired of it. Now, your district is uh, in uh, the northwest district? You're northwest of Portland, west-northwest of Portland. At Hillsboro, North Plains, little, maybe a little bit of northern Forest Grove. Right. So um, so then what was it uh, that you were chastising about in your press conference? Well, you can't leave – you can't create a party due to problems that you feel exist in the political process with the other parties, which is really a good old boys club, uh, and then give it – do the exact same thing, repeat the exact same process. I think at some point people will look beyond the name independent and they'll see that you, all you've done is created the exact same thing with a different name. And it's unacceptable to me, unacceptable. And this political process, it's sort of like uh, your guys' policy here, grassroots. I believe a, a citizen legislature political process needs to be grassroots. I think uh, uh, representatives need to represent the entire community, even those who don't vote for you, those who don't donate to you. It needs to be a holistic perspective. If that occurred, I think a lot of the problems that we experience – you know, in Washington County with housing or in Portland with housing, for instance, I think those uh, will be eliminated. But when you have a political process that is 
uh, the media kind of played a part in this where whoever has the most money seems the most viable, which really is an abuse of the system. Um, the regular people get left out. I mean, I, you think about this. I'm a kid who climbed out of absolute poverty. People cannot understand unless they go to a third world country. There was a six-month period where my brother and I and my sister were kidnapped, lived in the mountains with different names, okay? And, uh, was that here in the United States? Yeah, it was outside of Rainier, Oregon. Now, was given a different name and everything. And I climbed out of that to get a graduate degree, serve my country, and uh, have a great family. And even I was questioned if I was qualified to represent my community. I look around and I said, well, then who is qualified? This idea that there's some group of people, some class that is better equipped to do for us than we can do for ourselves, it's unacceptable to me. I think think when people ask that question, I know when I ask the question, what I'm doing is I'm trying to help the listener get an idea of who they're going to place their precious single vote in. And that's what I want. Keep your money. I want your vote. And for people to give you their vote, they want to know that you will do with their vote um, things that they will be proud to put their name to. Absolutely. And so that's why I asked the question. Oh, and I appreciate you clarifying that. I want to ask you about your service in the military. Now, you said that you were, um, you said you were a Marine? 12 years. And uh, you served in Afghanistan? Correct. Okay. When did your deployment end? Uh, it ended in 2012, the spring of 2012. Okay. So you are newly back, more or less newly back from the Middle East. Yes, and it's really interesting. Even, and I do feel quite a bit for former veterans, um, especially those here in Oregon. You know, my family is a service-oriented family. Both me and my brother joined the Marine Corps, you know, within months of each other. And he was in Iraq and I was in Afghanistan. And even being back here, even now, uh, I still sometimes, it's hard to believe (laughs) that I'm here. It's hard to believe. Now, as a representative, what what would you do to uh, support Oregon's veterans? Well, I think one of the biggest problems um, that we have in Oregon is the ability for veterans to find employment. And there needs to be direct hire um, relationships between the Department of Employment and Oregon employers for veterans to access. Um, generally, the veteran's preference does not uh, actually give preference to hiring of veterans. It's hard for businesses to translate what veterans do. And we need people in the Department of Employment who can assist in that process. You said in your press conference that the unemployment department was broken. Absolutely. Because there's and, too much money involved in politics. Oh, I believe the uh, Oregonian did a great story following that, just released this last week, talking about the problems the DOE is having. Uh, I think they had uh, $20 million unaccounted for. But uh, it's absolutely broken. When, when you have a... When you have an economy where there are actually 50,000 open positions annually and there's 100,000 unemployed people annually, it's looking, looking for work. And we just, you know, that's indicative of a broken process. Why is it that I can go to a staffing company who has a direct hire relationship with Oregon Business and I have to sacrifice 40% of my wages for a six-month period, three- to six-month period before I can get hired? Why is that the avenue that's there for, for these for these Oregonians, especially veterans. But there isn't an avenue when you go to the Department of Employment. Why is it that they, I'm given a computer that is no different than the iPhone I have in my hand, the same access? We need a more, a more connected uh, DOE with uh, Oregon business. And business owners, I, I can't tell you how many business owners in Hillsborough I've spoken to when I say, how many veterans do you, have you hired? And they say, I don't even know who to contact. 
So I went to the city manager of Hillsborough and I brought this up and he told me they got rid of that coordinator years ago. So nobody knows who to go to. No veterans know who to go to. And the DOE is really more concerned with just, you know, handing out money instead of helping people actually get avenues of opportunity. Long answer. (laughs) That's okay. You also mentioned in your press conference, you talked uh, a lot about Syrian refugees. Absolutely. The connection between Syrian refugees and your local candidacy is what? Well, Oregon is is pretty renowned for being progressive on these types of uh, these issues. And, uh, and I certainly want it known that I'm, I'm a veteran and I'm, I'm recently back from the Middle East. And, you know, I didn't look at children, women and children in Afghanistan and, and think of them as um, anything less than a human being. So they deserve human dignity and civil respect. And uh, to not be given these labels that I guess they allow an opportunity for people to dehumanize them. I know this is going to become an issue that is going to really hit Oregon in the next couple of years. This situation in the Middle East is far from over. And I'm still connected with a lot of my veteran friends that are watching this. And I'll tell you, this issue will come to the forefront at some point, as much as it is, more than it is now. Getting back to our local issues, um, you are running against um, incumbent Joe Gallegos. 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 He um, received 50% of the vote. Mm-hmm. At the last election, yeah. Um, so, d- why do you think that you would be a better choice? Well, I think he didn't have a. I don't believe that he had a viable um, opponent. As much as I I appreciate Sean Lindsay, I think maybe he took a different approach with um, Joe Gallegos. And I tell you, Joe Gallegos walked into a machine that uh, drummed up a half million dollars of support that really did nothing but just flood the community with his name. And, and you know, we do have a, a large um, Latino community in Hillsborough. And, you know, based on my conversations with the Democratic Party, I mean, it was, you know, he was hand-selected simply because of, you know, his ethnicity. And I tell you, um, if our political process is held at the mercy of money, I think we'll never solve our problems. And... This time is going to be different. You know, I think they had a lot of trust and confidence. He would get in there and he would maybe address some of the issues. But when you get in there and 98% of your your votes just go to the group that voted you in, what about the other half? One of the principles that you have on your website is you talk about how you believe in modern infrastructure and a vibrant and competitive agricultural industry. And I I want to break those apart. Uh, the first thing I want to talk about is the modern infrastructure. Now, you know, there's been a lot of emphasis here in recent months on the possibility that within the next 30 years, Oregon could be hit by a magnitude 9 earthquake. And being in the Hillsboro area, that's, a, you know, there are a lot of arteries that run through Hillsboro from Portland and I-5 to the coast. So if you became a representative for House District 30, what would you do to increase the strength of the infrastructure, to improve the infrastructure? Well, it's, it's not just when you're a state representative, you're not necessarily thinking just compartmentalized, like I'm just only worrying about my district. You're kind of thinking about the state as well, as a whole. And I think that there's a lot the state as a whole can do. But I know if you visit other countries that. And I just want to. I just want to jump in for a minute. It's very interesting because some legislators I've I have talked to, um, are very district specific, <laughs> and they don't 
they they, well, they, they have are, donors in their district that they really care about. They are hesitant to move outside of the needs of their district, and other representatives have a very holistic approach. Well, I think that any solution is going to come from a holistic approach, and you you can't get in this game of trying to please donors. You have to uh, do what's best for the state and for your children. I have three three daughters and a son, a son who's six months old, and I really care about how Oregon's going to look in 20 years to them, in 30 years. And it, I believe it's my responsibility to do my part, to be more and do more. And so getting back to infrastructure. Oh, absolutely. So, you know, there's a lot that we can do to connect eastern Oregon with western Oregon and to help some of these transportation costs that these farmers are having to deal with, trying to get harvest to market. There's a lot that can happen there. I think anybody who looks ahead a half century and says, do we believe that the I-84 corridor is going to continue to be pretty much the sole east-west um, distribution route. That's absurd. And we can't continue to function with, a, a would say, a, a hybrid between a 19th and 20th century uh, infrastructure in a 21st century reality of interconnectivity. We have to move forward. Now I want to talk about the agricultural part. Oh, absolutely. Um, as you know, um, in the eastern and southern parts of the state uh, and central parts of the state, agriculture is, is much more uh, of, a, of a critical industry than it is in the western part of the state. But in the western part of the state is where a lot of those agricultural goods end up leaving the state to go to the rest of the country and the rest of the world. But as you know, uh, Terminal 6 has been a source of contention uh, between union and terminal operators, and it's been a bottleneck, uh, some would call it, uh, for moving those goods in and out of the state. So if you became a legislator, what would you do to, to try to fix that problem? Well, first of all, you know, part of the problem is, I think you said earlier about representatives that are really thinking about just their district or just their party. And I personally believe that, uh, you know, having spent my a majority of my time living in the eastern part of Oregon as well as in central Idaho, which is really close, same type of economy. You know, Eastern Oregon gets forgot about mostly because it's, it's, you know, it's very conservative. It's very fiscally conservative. They tend to very traditional and very, very, I guess, red Republican. If you look on the map and, and perhaps even though Western Oregon loves to eat and loves to have cheap prices and loves to have a functional economy and loves to have exports, they forget that those things come because of the work from Eastern Oregon. So we need to make sure that holistically they're given an equal voice regardless of who's representing them and that uh, those farmers, even though the population might not be as great as you know as some of these other districts in the huge, vast areas, um, you, you got to think about expediting harvest to market. It has to happen. And and it's to the point right now that regardless of what the past you know situation was, they need to start removing the barriers, and it needs to happen right now. What barriers are in the way? Uh, well, one of them is distribution routes and lanes. It, these, these can, this battle between the environmentalists and and uh, and those who really want to you know expand construction, they got to come together and they got to work together because it has to happen. It has to happen. Now, when you talk about expand construction, are you talking about transportation routes? Oh, absolutely. Distribution systems? I mean, what are you talking Everything. And, and I, it and all needs to be And I'm still talking about <laughs> Terminal 6, so okay. you veered well, off, but I well, want to go back to absolutely. Terminal 6. Well, uh, 
state what your your primary issue is with Terminal 6. Well, my primary question is, what would you as a legislator do to help address the issue that has been a bottleneck for Terminal 6 for the last 18 months at least? Whenever you allow unions too much control in your economy and in your, I guess, market economy, um, and you start making policies based upon, I guess, their opinions, which is, I think, more toward tied to donations. I think that's where you start getting this in some serious problem. I think we see that with the public and employee unions as well with education. And we're going to talk about that oh, too. Oh, I'd love to. But we're to the point where you can't sit down and mess with the Oregonian families like this. Those terminal workers obviously have viable reasons for what they're saying, as well as the union leaders, but you can't have a black and white solution. There is a gray area, and I think that's probably why there's a lot of NAVs in the state. There's a lot of people that realize there is a lot of dynamics to go into things, but I am not for um, union-caused uh, labor slowdowns. They've never been shown to help anything, and they're just a – it's sort of like a threat of violence, but it's a threat of uh, – it's an economic threat. And, you know, and I'd say it's economic, it's, it's economic terrorism in some regard because it's meant to elicit to force. It's meant to force a response out of you that you otherwise would be waiting for more information to make a decision on. I don't, li- I don't like that type of – that's like someone coming up and holding your arm behind your back. We need some more level-headed people that can actually sit down and just find a solution. There's common ground on everything. And there always is a way forward. But people cannot just be, well, I just absolutely will not work with you. Because you're this way or that way or you belong to this. It's like when I went to the Democratic Party and they said, have you ever voted for a Republican? Well, yeah, I have. Oh, you're unviable. These are the type of people that we have running things. It's absurd. I wanted to ask you about PERS. You brought PERS up earlier. And um, as you know, last year the Supreme Court more or less rejected the Oregon legislature's attempt to fix the PERS issue uh, through the grand bargain. And so now the ball is back in the legislature's court. And um, last year there was a lot said that how the solution for PERS may end up coming out of the money that is allocated for schools. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to ask you as a legislator. Wait, isn't that irony? As a legislator to be, how would you work with your fellow legislators to help deal with this PERS issue? Well, we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be surprised um, by what the courts did. I mean, they're the ones that say that, you know, as much money as you know, as people want to throw into politics, they can. Um, so I don't think they're focused properly. So you feel the court's but, decision was wrong? Yeah, I feel it's not. Any time, listen, let's just think about this for a second. Public employee unions, when they try to get more, okay, and you're you're talking about employees that are that are solely funded based upon the t- the back of the taxpayers, then what you're actually saying is that you are dictating to a legislature a tax increase. That's what you're doing. And last I checked, any non-legislative entity that can dictate tax increases really bothers me. And that's general. That's exactly what they're doing, and that's what will come of it. If you think for a moment that the legislatures down there are just going to change direction from the promises that they made to get votes, uh, you're, you're probably wrong. So what we have to do is we have to find members that are a part of both parties that – uh, they want an outcome for their investment. There are a lot of Democrats and Republicans that think like the rest of regular people. Um, they're just a f- – I, th- I think they get too caught up in party politics. So let me go back to this. If your outcome for 
a substantial increase in funding. You know, nearly half your high school students not going to college. Something needs to change. And I don't believe that uh, we can allow PERS to tank the Oregon economy or to cause an already overly taxed citizenry, citizenry to be taxed even more because of the failed decisions and promises made by politicians seeking office in the past. And that's what happened. We're paying the price for it. I want to ask you now about the issue regarding what's going on in Malheur County. Annan Bundy, son of Clive and Bundy, a statist, um, is there along with a couple of dozen uh, supporters, and they are currently occupying a federal wildlife refuge um, at the uh, reserve there. Their reason for being there is because they believe that the refuge should be turned back over to the state, to the county. They also want... uh, father and son uh, Hammonds to be released from federal prison for their conviction of burning some federal lands in what the government called arson back in 2001 Mm -hmm. as a protest. They were making a protest. But they agreed to report to prison. Um, And Mr. Bundy and his group believe that, uh, I I believe I heard a press conference uh, a couple of days ago where they said that even though those two may not have the moral courage to not protest, continue their protest, they were protesting on behalf of them and everyone in Malheur County and everyone in the West who believes that the federal government has too much control of of uh, the country's land. So my question for you is, as a legislator, again, looking at this issue holistically, wh- what is your view on um, the issue of federal lands versus state lands? I don't believe that that's the right way, again, to force action on any issue. And being that my father is a Native American on the rolls of Turtle Mountain Indian Reservation in uh, Belcourt, North Dakota, I can certainly tell you that uh, if anybody should have a loud voice right now, it's not them. It's the Native Americans who, you know, were forced to walk hundreds of miles to Yakima. What do you think the issue is? Between the BLM and uh, landowners or with the Bundys? Both. Well, with the Bundys, I think it's... It's a pissing contest. They did some things they were told not to do prior to them doing them, and they did it anyways. And one thing I learned in the Marine Corps is uh, that's bad business. Yeah, but some people would call that liberty. <laughs> uh, well, I don't, I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that. I think that we have been given in America, granted that I've been outside of America, an opportunity to have greater access to sharing our opinions that doesn't, that doesn't require – situations like that. Um, they certainly could have gone to state capitol buildings and, and performed sit-ins. They certainly could have done other things. I don't think they needed to go and, I mean, what's the point? Is there, the, the lodgers, nobody even up there. It's just a bunch of snow. Um, so it's just, it's just to get, uh, they're trying to play off emotions. And I just don't think it's reasonable. It causes people to react quickly without information. And I think that more information needs gathered. Now the BLM, does have a history of corruption, just like most federal government agencies, as well as state agencies. And again, that's tied back to interests. Whose interests are they actually looking out for? And it can be a little bit scary for uh, landowners and farmers and agricultural uh, growers when they start looking at these things and thinking, what will I be next? In southern Idaho, when I was growing up, they had this issue with snails. You had farmers, and they they found these snails on their farms, and the snails happened to be endangered. 
And I'll tell you, there were farmers that lost their livelihoods. And that's a difficult thing to tell a family that everything that you've been doing for hundreds of years, your family has, decades, you know, it's over. And you just got to go do something else. That can be troublesome for a lot. And it might be leading to a lot of this fear and concern. They only know one way of life. It's sort of like taking a veteran who served 20, 30 years in the Marine Corps, sending him in the society with no support structure, and you wonder why he can't function. It's a completely different paradigm. So you have to appreciate both sides. I think the BLM is too aggressive. No, they are too aggressive. And the states have become so bought off by federal monies that they have stepped aside, okay, and they have allowed the federal government really to molest uh, citizens uh, continually. And I think that's absurd. The states could probably manage those a lot better than some agency that is based thousands of miles away in some case. And that is probably the dispute. Speaking of Washington, this is my last question. I, I wanted to ask you about the Affordable Care Act. Now, as you know, the Congress was able to get uh, a bill repealing the Affordable Care Act to the president's desk for the first time after 60 or so attempts. Um, and it's tied to funding and Planned Parenthood. Uh, the president is almost guaranteed to veto it. But I wanted to ask you, if a Republican president is uh, elected and that president carries through on what are common threats among all the Republican candidates to defund and eliminate the Affordable Care Act, what will you as a legislator do to help bring any replacement program to Oregonians? Because our program currently runs on top of the Affordable Care Act. Mm -hmm. Here's the issue, okay? My daughter fell into a pool and sprained her finger this summer. And it was dislocated. Now, I certainly could have put it back into place, but she's a pretty – she's my daughter. She's a beautiful little girl, and I want her to have a straight finger. So I took her to the hospital, and, and about 30 minutes later, we walked out of the hospital. And this, co this directly relates to your question. We walked out of the hospital, and all they had done is, is put it back into place really quick, about a five – literally less than five minutes, and they just taped it to the other finger. Now, a couple weeks later, I got a $1,000 bill, okay? Uh, then I got a couple weeks later a $700 bill from the doctor, and then a couple weeks later I got a bill from the $1,000 bill from uh, so I got a dollar a bill from the hospital, a bill from the doctor, and a bill from the little machine, the company that owns the little machine that did the little X-ray that they brought in the room. So just putting a little splint on a little finger cost me almost $3,000. And I'll tell you something: the Affordable Care Act certainly didn't make that a more fair process. And that's what we're talking about. You have regular human beings that are already strapped, especially in Oregon. You have lower to middle income families paying 9% income tax, okay, which is forcing them into social assistance, forcing them into substandard housing because the rental rates are increasing vastly outpacing uh, you know, $1,000 for a one bedroom. And, and then on top of that, you can't even get routine medical assistance without being substantially gouged. Now, here's my problem. I get charged $2,700, but if it goes to my insurance, my insurance can actually try to get that down. How come they have the ability to um, work out uh, a reduced, more feasible rate, and the individual doesn't? They so, would call that economies of scale. So my perception on it is the Affordable Care Act is meant to reduce costs and make health care more affordable for everyday families. And I'll tell you – it's, it's nothing but a name for forcing people to have to buy insurance with the ex expectation that at some point 
there will be a reduction. However, you are not seeing a reduction because these are for-profit institutions. And the second the economy grows, rates increase, they, they are like a cartel. What would help me more as an individual, David Taylor, father of a family, husband, me, what would help me is if I had access to know what the rate was at all the hospitals so I can choose where I wanted to go. If I knew what the rate was at all the doctors so I could choose where I want to go. Insurance is just one part of it. Okay, and briefly, I want to ask you about Oregon's affordable housing situation. Can you talk a little bit about that? You know, I hope that uh, Oregon focuses on addressing this housing issue. Okay? There is nothing more important right now than getting affordable housing in Oregon and connecting employees or connecting citizens to jobs and uh, reducing some of this tax burden on our lower to middle income families and revitalizing our infrastructure and building a 21st century economy and finding solutions that are holistic for Oregon. And I believe in it. I'm passionate about it. And I'm self-funding. I'm asking for your vote, not your dollar. And uh, let's, you know, let's make Oregon work for everybody. And thank you again for taking the time to talk to me. I appreciate it. I'm Don Merrill. I've been talking to David Taylor. Mr. Taylor is an independent running for state representative in House District 30. Thanks for listening.